Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Can you hear me okay? No. So, a little bit louder. How about now? Can you hear me okay now? Yes, okay. Good, good to get a, one or the other, yes or no. Um, I'm Eugene Cash. Uh, I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. Uh, I've been teaching here a long time now. Um, and uh, also I'm the lead teacher, founding teacher of San Francisco Insight in San Francisco. Um, I'm happy to be here, happy to see you all. I'm having a, a little uh, reverie being here today. I got here early because I wanted to beat the traffic from the city and so I came early and hung out a little bit and had dinner up at the uh, residential center where nobody was there because there's no retreat there. So it's kind of nice to be there with nobody there. And, uh, and then walked around the hills a little tonight. Um, but also, you know, seeing the continuation of the movement towards the end of this part of Spirit Rock meaning that we're moving and the old offices are gone here from the meadow. And so it's been, it's been uh, interesting to reflect and to remember when we started many years ago and this was all new, even this hall, which will be gone soon. And, um, you know, this will be one of my last times teaching in this hall and I've, I've taught here many times and it's great to teach here. And it's great that it'll be gone. Really, this, this hall is, this was a temporary hall. We were thinking a few years, you know, and it's been something, 20 years that it's been here. So, and, and things change. And, you know, change has its pluses and minuses, like everything. But it also, it doesn't just have its minuses. It has its pluses. So I'm excited that we'll be in the new community hall soon. Um, I'll give some, uh, we'll have a sitting for a while. I'll give a little bit of instructions at the beginning to settle us in, a little bit to orient us. Uh, here's a question. How many people consider themselves new to meditation? Let me see. Keep your hand up a second. I just want to see. Right. Okay. How many people think they're old to meditation? Let me... <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you know, you've done it for a while. You've, okay, okay, great. And how many people are in the middle? Right. Yeah, all of us, right? Um, okay, great, great. So I'll give some instructions. Then there'll be a longer period in silence to practice. Um, the one thing I always like to do is really encourage you to sit upright to sit up straight. Now you can see I'm sitting upright in a very relatively relaxed way, meaning that I'm on my sits bones. And that's really good if you're on a, if you're on a cushion or if you're on a bench, but also even if you're in the chair, you, 
you want to sit as much as possible on your sits bones, and I'll give you some instructions you could play with on the chair. The easiest way to do it on the chair is to sit on the front third of the chair so that you're sitting very much forward in the chair and you're upright from there and your, your legs are straight in front of you. It's good to have both feet flat on the ground. Um, and you're not leaning back into the chair so much. Um, now, people like to sit in chairs because they can lean back into chairs and if that's what you want to do, you can do that. But the other way to do it, where you're more on your sits bones, is to scoot your rear end all the way into the chair and then sit upright from there. So I'm giving you a couple different options to play with and you can experiment and see what works. And of course, any way you sit, however upright or not, will still be able to meditate. So please find your posture and sitting upright. And upright means that the spine is straight, but it's not stiff. And that's why sitting on the sits bones is very helpful for that natural uprightness because the, there's a little tilt in the pelvis that helps the back go upright naturally. And, um, and then, as, you know, as you find your posture, um, you can start to scan your body and see if there's any extra holding or extra tension you can relax or let go of. And I'll give a few places you can check as you sit upright. Um, it might be good to have your hands on your lap, on your thighs, or one hand holding the other hand is fine. And it's fine to practice with your eyes shut or your eyes open as you wish. But generally we give the instruction for the eyes closed. And then beginning to scan or check or become sensitive to your body and seeing if there's any extra holding or tension or tightness that you can relax easily or simply. And a few places that I like to check is first of all the jaw, which is a place we often hold tension in our jaw. So you could stretch it a little and then let it come back to relaxing. And seeing if there's maybe any holding in the shoulders, if you're holding your shoulders up in any way or not. And with the, I'll add something about the jaw. One way you can uh, help relax the jaw is to let your tongue very, very lightly touch the upper palate by the front teeth and let the jaw relax from there. 
and checking, as I said, the shoulders and the belly. You don't have to have really strong, tight abs to meditate. You can let the belly be very soft, very relaxed. Of course, checking the arms or the hands. The legs, feet. And there's a paradox with the posture is we want to be very upright and very relaxed, both. So there's a combination of energy and aliveness and relaxation and ease. And then being aware of the bodies just sitting here. Beginning to come into the simplicity of being here right now. Being alive here right now with this living body. Letting the awareness begin to permeate or saturate the physical experience. And it doesn't mean that you have to feel every centimeter of your body but it means letting the awareness saturate the sense of bodiness that is sitting here.
So, how is it to keep practicing now while we're been chatting and maybe you're drinking or eating a cookie or but you're not stopping being aware and you keep being aware of your body and your breathing as it happens right now and you could start the talk tape anytime okay great thank you um, uh, because it really uh, for me, it's one of the most interesting things about practice these days is what does it mean to practice 24-7? And what does it mean for practice to start to become embodied? So that it's not just an abstract practice or it's not just a practice I do at Spirit Rock or it's not just a practice I do when I'm sitting in formal meditation. But all those things are good, you know, sitting in formal meditation, totally good, great. Be great to be at Spirit Rock and feel the um, power of sitting even in this room that people have sat in for the last 20 years and starting to get, and getting the support of sitting with like-minded people and friends um, together and the power of that. And also, what's it like to keep practicing even when we're not doing the formal practice? And so I'm going to keep encouraging that tonight, even while I talk, and then even while you talk, because I like to do a little, I like to hear from you when I'm teaching these days, meaning I like to hear from people. So at San Francisco Insight, every week when I teach now, I give a talk, and then I want to hear, well, what do you think about the talk? Make any sense? Does that seem right, wrong? Is it helpful, not a helpful? interesting not interesting and it and and it it helps the transmission of the talk come alive if you know that you're going to talk about it also right even if it's a bad talk it's great to hear i love hearing if it's a bad talk please don't don't be afraid to tell me really meaning don't be afraid to be real because the Dharma is asking us to be real. The Dharma is asking us to be real. And the instructions I gave today were, tonight were the most um, basic instructions about the embodiment of the Dharma. Or to put it more poetically, the embodiment of spirit which is part of what is happening here when we practice, the embodiment of spirit. And the Buddha, I don't know if how many people know this or don't know this, the Buddha breathed himself. The Buddha breathed himself to enlightenment. Right? Everybody got that? The Buddha breathed himself to awakening. The Buddha breathed himself to freedom. And so we don't want to underestimate the simplicity and the power of being with the body and the breath. 
because it can take you all the way to freedom, all the way to uh, all the riches that the Dharma offers. And it's one of, you know, I love these statues, right? Love, here's the Buddha and looks like a version of Kuan Yin or Prajnaparamita. It's not Prajnaparamita, but let's say Kuan Yin. But, but you don't see the Buddha breathing in the statue, right? But the Buddha breathed himself to enlightenment. And the statue is a symbol of something that's sitting in your seat. He, the statue is pointing at something that's sitting here within each human being that is part of the potential for us to breathe ourselves, to understand, to wake up to what it is to be a human being and the potential for what it is to be a human being. And the way I really, personally, the way I think about the Buddha's enlightenment or awakening these days is I think, oh, he became a mature human being. He became a mature human being. And I'm not saying um, we're not all already mature human beings, right? There's different levels of maturity. And we all have a very conventional sense of maturity, right? We, you know... Whatever, whatever it might be, we have, we work, or we have relationships, or we have family, or we have friends, or we are involved in politics, or we're, we pay the bills generally, you know, and things like that. Um, but the Buddha, and the Buddha, you know, he lived his life, he was a prince, and he, and he lived a princely life, really, as a, 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 in, in his time and place. And then he realized another level of freedom was possible. Another level of what it meant to be a human being was possible. Another level of maturation was possible that was not just the conventional maturation. And he did a really cool thing, I, in my language, my view. He trusted himself to seek something that a lot of people told him was not possible. Like he, because he he did a, a lot of practice with the best known teachers, and it didn't bring the freedom he intuited was possible, and they said, "Oh no, that you can that won't happen. That won't ever happen. You'll never get there." And he said, "Thank you," because they asked him to teach. I mean, he was a good student, whatever he was doing. They asked him to teach. And, and he said, well, no, thank you. This doesn't bring the freedom that I know is possible. And so I'm saying this because I think that understanding, that intuition is sitting in every seat here. I think we all know there's more possible. There's more possible for who and what we are to come forward or to mature or to reveal itself and so we discover the potential of what it is to be a human being and to mature on a whole nother level of what's possible. <clears throat> and so the Buddha did his practice on his own. And uh, let's see. 
having a little microphone dukkha. Try that. Um, uh, so the Buddha went and practiced, and he practiced very sincerely. One of the beautiful things about the Buddha, he was very sincere, and I'll say it in my language, he was a no-bullshit kind of guy. Like when he did something, he did it all the way. And he gave himself to what he was doing. And he gave himself to practice. And so he, at some point he sat down and he said, I'm going to sit here until I wake up. I'm going to sit here until I discover the freedom that I know is possible. And he sits down and he goes through a lot of Dukkha, if, if you don't know the word dukkha, it's translated as suffering or disease or stress or uncomfortability. And it's a very normal part of you being a human being. We all have dukkha, right? And he said, well, I'm going to sit here with whatever comes until I wake up. And the practice that he did was he breathed. He sat with this human experience, with his body and his breath, and he took that all the way to freedom. He breathed himself to awakening. And he uses that the whole night of his enlightenment, where he goes through these different stages of enlightenment. And then for the rest of his life, it's a practice he continued to use and he encouraged in his teaching and he taught his followers, his, you know, the monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen who became followers of the Buddha. And he himself used the practice of mindfulness of the breath all the way till he didn't live anymore, till he died. And I w wanted to talk about this for a number of reasons that you'll hear in the talk. One is that it's a vast and rich practice to be with this simple, ordinary, everyday human experience of being alive and breathing. And I do want to encourage you, even now, be aware of your body and your breath while I'm talking. Like, keep it in your awareness, because it's happening, and if it's not happening, we'll know, but it won't be your problem anymore. But, but you know, it's, you know, it's part of the how it works sometimes. So, but the meditation itself can take you very deep into the richness and fullness of what the Dharma has to offer. Because it develops awareness itself and mindfulness or bodyfulness or heartfulness, whatever way we want to language the fullness of the contemplative practice of meditation. And also it develops samadhi, which is a really beautiful part of practice that gets undervalued, I believe, these days. And samadhi is generally translated as uh, um, concentration, not a word I like so much. It's, it's okay, but um, another way to uh, think about samadhi is it's the unification of body, heart, and mind. It's the unification of mind with experience so that it's not fragmented. And that's why one learns how to stay with a very simple ordinary experience like the body and the breathing 
because it's hard to do. It's not easy to do. But when you learn, when you develop that skill and use that, it's, it's part of the discipline of practice to develop that skill. It creates, it's a tremendous power and, a, and actually a lot of bliss comes with samadhi. A lot of pleasure, what, what the Buddha described as the wise use of pleasure comes with samadhi, with the unity of body and mind. And you all know something about the unity of body and mind already, but it's often something we don't um, articulate to ourselves when it's happening, because it happens, here's a good example for a lot of us who, if you like sports, part of what happens in any good sport is body and mind comes together and unifies. And here I'll give you, a, I think, a really good example. I watched a lot of the uh, um, Warriors last year who won the basketball championship. And the samadhi they had was fantastic. This group samadhi, it's like they, they knew where each other was without having to look at times. And that can happen with samadhi because it's one, it's one of the practices that brings what's called the cities, S-I-D-D-H-I, I believe that's how it's called, the cities or the powers or what are sometimes called magical powers, which can come with meditation practice. And it's cool when that shit happens, really, to be honest. And I've done a lot of practice, and I've had some very interesting experiences. And, and it's like, whoa, this is, you know, also let, I'll be real with you tonight. You know, I liked um, certain um, mind-altering drugs when I was young. And, um, and I haven't done any of those for many years, but I learned how to meditate. And oh, you can, you can discover the original mind-altering drugs are sitting right here. And really with samadhi, you start to have some experiences. Whoa, that is, it's wild. It's, and I think totally cool. And you know, it's not the end-all be-all of meditation, but it teaches you something about the nature of consciousness because we all underestimate the nature of consciousness. We all think we know what it is to be conscious. And, and please let me assure you, there is way more for us to learn. And I'll give you a personal example. So I had a really serious accident uh, four, four and a half years ago, something like that. And I, um, and this is one of my sports that I loved is bike riding, and I did a lot of bike riding on mountain bike, and uh, and uh, this is paradoxically humorous is that, so and and I did the Buddhist bike pilgrimage a number of times, which is riding from Spirit Rock up 150 miles up to uh, Abayagiri, and. Um, and uh, stopping at some Buddhist places along the way, and uh, and what and so I was going to do it one year, and they said, and the the organizers said, oh, will you give a talk, which I'd done before there, and they said, okay, give give the first talk, you know, and I said sure, and I gave the first talk, and I said I'll talk about not knowing, right, not knowing, which is an important part of the Dharma, 
there's things we know and then seeing there's things we don't know and starting to be open to the not knowing. And so, and uh, actually there's a great book called Freedom from the Known, Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. And it's one of my all-time favorite Dharma books that I've never read. <laughs> really, no, this is true because he nailed it in the title. Freedom from the known. I didn't, I didn't want to know what he had to say about it. He, he got it in the title. And, and, and I hear it's really a good book. And, uh, but, but so I was giving a talk about, you know, we don't know what's going to happen and it's a mystery and we'll see. And so it means staying present moment by moment. And then we went on the ride and I went and had a big fall because I didn't know what was going to happen and had a serious injury broken bones and all kinds of stuff and and a head injury serious head injury five weeks in the hospital long recovery and i'm amazed totally happy to be here um um but we and we so i'm pointing at that because we don't know what's going to happen and also some things happen for me during that period when i really um when you have a brain injury you get unplugged, meaning you can lose everything. It's, it's a serious thing to have a brain injury. And they said I had a mild traumatic brain injury. I don't even, can't even imagine what a not mild uh, brain injury would be. But, um, but I, had, I got unplugged from who I was for quite a while. And that unpl- unplugged, just to give you an example, uh, five weeks in the hospital, I get home. I didn't know how to meditate. I had no idea how to meditate. And this is really true. I just didn't even, I didn't even know. I saw my Zafu and I knew what it was. I, had, I didn't know what to do with that. And, and I'd done a lot of practice and a lot of samadhi practice. And, and at some point I sat down on the Zafu and and I didn't know what to do. And what was really interesting was it didn't matter that I didn't know what to do. And so that was very, very, I learned, I learned so much during that accident. And I'm not recommending accidents as a way to have big learning. But also, there's some things happen. This was really even going back further. In the hospital, things would happen in the middle of the night that were so wild, consciousness was so wild, and it wasn't me doing anything, it was just doing itself. And so I have a tremendous respect for human consciousness and what's possible, because we don't know what's possible. And we will all, this is one of the few things I can really assure you, we will all continue to learn more no doubt, and especially because we're not going to live forever. And let's see what happens with consciousness then. Who knows, really? But don't, at least for me, I've learned not to believe what I think I know as being the whole truth. It's part of the truth, and there's more to learn. There's more to discover about the nature of reality itself. So I'm improvising a lot here. Let me go back to the talk. (laughs) Um, 
So the breath meditation, beautiful. Samadhi, this sense of unity with body and mind can come, can bring all kinds of pleasure, joy, delight, um, and also be a cultivation for insight to happen. It's where the Buddha's insight happened while he was doing mindfulness of breathing. And this unification of body and mind, which I believe we all know a lot about, right? And like I'm saying in sports, one of the other places we know about it and appreciate it, hopefully, uh, you know, at least some of the time, is sexually. We human beings tend to like sex because it's one of the places where we kind of get here and we're in our bodies. We're not just in our minds. We're here in the direct, immediate experience. And that's the, we're not fragmented, right? And really, uh, one time, okay, I'm just going to riff on this whole talk. So one time, <laughs> one time, um, uh, I used to teach at USF. Yeah, at USF, I did a little mindfulness teaching many, many years ago for the staff and, and teachers. And at some point, the, they asked me, would I be willing to do uh, some teaching for some young people for an Outward Bound project? Something like that. It's a long time ago. And this is, this is and so I want to just acknowledge from the, from the brain injury, the one thing that's weakest sometimes is my memory for details. So, but it's, it's come back a lot, but still coming back. And so I said, okay, sure, I'll, I'll teach it. You know, and they said, well, you have an hour to teach these young people mindfulness. I said, okay, that'll be interesting. Let's see what happens. And I go, and uh, I go in the room, and I'm not thinking about it beforehand, but I get there, and then these young people uh, come in, and they're um, young people of a very diverse culturally, most people of color and young, and um, and uh, and I see, oh yeah, okay, let's and and some of them have been in trouble, and you know, but okay, let's see what what can happen here. What and they're and they're playing around, kidding around, and they're a little bit like, okay, who's this little white guy? And you know, and I introduce myself and say a few things, and then I realize, oh, I, how can I get these people's attention? Because um, if I was their age, I would not care about this at all. And you know, it's like, who is this guy? So I said, and so I'm talking a little about meditation, and I said, well, here's here's my one question to you: Do you want to have really good sex? <laughs> And that caught their attention. And it was very cool because then a couple couple guys, they just jumped up on the table and started sitting cross-legged. And, <laughs> and I thought, okay, now we can at least start the conversation. Because I was saying, if you want to have good sex, you need to be there. And you need to be in your body. And you need to help. You want also the other person to be in their body. Because at least in my you know, limited understanding, that's when good sex happens. So, so we know a little bit about the pleasure of being here in that embodied way, in sports, 
in sexuality, in the arts, right, in dance, right? Or if, even if you're doing theater, if you're not in your body when you're doing it, it's not very good. If you've ever seen somebody act and they don't look like they're really there, okay, come on, next, you know. Um, and, and I'm also saying this a little because I'm very appreciative these days of Analyo Bhikkhu, uh, the venerable Analyo, who wrote what I think is the best book on mindfulness ever written called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. Satipatthana, which is the name of the original text, um, The Direct Path to Realization. And Analyo is great because he's very detailed and, he's, and I love sitting with him because he spends the whole first part of any sitting getting people embodied. And you do, you do this body scanning three different ways. You scan by feeling the skin on your head and face and neck and one arm at a time, the other arm, and then the torso and front and the back and then into the genitals and then down one leg and all the way and then down the other. And that's just one, just feeling the skin, being aware of the skin. And then you come back up one leg at a time and feel the, be aware of the flesh. And then come back the other leg, the flesh, and come back through the torso again, feeling the flesh in the torso. And of course, the flesh is all the organs and the intestines and the, the lungs and the heart and everything. And then up the one arm and then the other arm. And then... And then um, and then into the neck and in, and feeling the tongue and feeling the being aware of the brain and then and then a third time you come down feeling all the bones starting with your skull and all the bones in your head and then in your spine neck and then the shoulder and then down one arm and down the other and down and then and that's you do all of that before you start with the breath Right? You do three different body scans to start to get embodied. And then you do the breath. And then and Analyo is great. I, I totally encourage anybody to sit with him because then you go to mindfulness of death and you just do it all in one sitting. And of course, he sits for three hours at a time, so he can do it all. It's easy for him. But, you know, but even for, for um, 45 minutes, you can do, you do the whole Satipatthana, the whole teaching on mindfulness in one sitting. And then you keep doing, you keep repeating that as you practice. And it's very, you end up feeling very embodied and very aware of the totality of what the Buddha was offering in the teachings of what's called mindfulness the fullness of the teaching that is really the Satipatthana Sutta. And so the breath is just a beautiful part of that. It's not just, it is a beautiful part of that. And one of the beautiful things about staying with the simplicity of your body and the breathing is that it can begin to shift our perception of reality. It can begin to change how we perceive and what we perceive. And it, even our experience of what is perceiving 
meaning I could say who is perceiving, but I like the language of what is perceiving better. Because the who then makes us think about, oh, who am I, and there's no self, and all that. And that all may be true, that there is no self, but that's not as important as the experiential of even now, what is hearing me? What is seeing me? And so I'm asking you to turn and be aware of what's sitting here, knowing what I'm saying and what I'm what I look like. And then, of course, it's also knowing what you're thinking and what you're feeling. But starting to be aware of the liveness that's here that is aware of everything. And so partly I'm giving this very broad uh, beginning here to this talk. because I love the fact that the Latin root of the word breath, the Latin root of the word breath is spirit. That the word breath and spirit are the same word. When we breathe, we, are, we inspire, right? We, to take in a breath is, to, is called inspire and to exhale is to expire and so the first sign of life when a baby is born is the breath right it oh there right and then it's a that's not the only important thing but that's a very big deal when you see a baby take a first breath It's inspiring. It's breathing in life or spirit is coming alive with the breath. And our life is, our birth is characterized by our first breath. And our death is characterized by our last breath, expire. When we die, we expire. And we will all experientially be aware of that at some point. That's just normal. It's not a mistake. Sometimes it happens before we want it to happen or, you know, or at the wrong time. But it's not a mistake. Every living thing is born and lives and expires and then dies. And so part of practice is starting to get comfortable with the living reality that is right here, right now. And it's, and it's here, really. I could stop the whole talk now and just say, oh yeah, just be with yourself. And, and in Zen, they have a beautiful phrase that I like. They say, oh yeah, the way to practice is be, be yourself all the way to the end. Be yourself all the way to the end. Be, be with this direct living experience. It's already here. It's not on some mountaintop that one has to go, although it's nice to go to mountaintops, but it's right here. It's sitting right here, right now, and we can practice with it right now, even while we're relating, even while I'm talking and you're listening for the moment. 
So the feeling of breathing or sensing of breath. Sometimes people, they, they're a little skeptical about the breath. They say, well, what's the big deal, right? It's like, you know, it's just a breath. I breathe all the time. And that has its relative truth, right? We're breathing all the time. Except when you go underwater. You ever notice what it's like to stay underwater for quite a while and then to come up and get a breath? That breath is really good, that breath. You know, or here, you could try this right now. Everybody hold your breath for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and it's good to be able to laugh about it, but it's true. That would be really hard to do, right? Because we, we're, we're not independent in this way that we think we're independent. We're related to everything. Because we're, re first of all, we're related to the atmosphere. We can't live without air. And if we screw up enough, we're going to have some really bad problems here in this world, right? Because if the atmosphere gets unbreathable at some point, okay, the human race will go. Or not, and unfortunately, not just the human race, all, all of living things can die. So one of the great mysteries of consciousness is we often don't see what's right in front of us, what's right here. And even the breath is totally amazing that we're alive, that we're sitting, living, creatures, breathing right now. Just that. Just feeling it. Feel, feel your body. Feel the breath. Here, here's one thing you could be aware of for the moment. Be aware of the aliveness that's here. And it doesn't have to be any special way, right? It doesn't have to be the perfect aliveness or the blissful aliveness. It could be the, oh, I'm in a shitty mood aliveness. That's okay. But the aliveness that's here and the aliveness that's knowing what's here becomes very important. And paradoxically, the breath can lead to many of the this is bad, bad speech on Eugene's part, but I'll say it anyways. Paradoxically, um, <laughs> uh, uh, the breath can lead to uh, showing us more paradox <laughs> about what it is to be, what the Dharma has to offer. And here, I'll read you a poem. This is a Rumi poem. He says, not Christian, not Jewish, not Muslim, not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, or Zen, not any religion or cultural system. I am not from the East or the West, nor not out of the ocean or up from the ground. I am not natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. I do not exist, am not an entity in this world or the next. I did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is the placeless. My place is the placeless. 
a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know, first, last, outer, inner, only that breath-breathing human being. So it's Rumi is pointing us at the mystery of life that we are. But we're not any story. We're not any idea. There's a living reality that is totally magical on a certain level. And this human spirit becomes a dharma doorway or dharma gateway, the gateway to the mystery of ourselves, of the Buddha within, of the Buddha that the Buddha discovered himself, right? You remember the Buddha wasn't a Buddha, right? He He was a guy. He was a prince, actually. And he discovered something. He realized something by staying with the simple, ordinary, direct human reality, he realized a greater reality or a Buddha nature is another way to say it. And, and one way we could talk about it or think about it is there's a shift that happens with practice and it's the shift that happens of, from, from being human doings to actually becoming human beings. You know, we're quite busy people. Anybody here not busy? Let me see. It's a rare soul who will raise their hand when I ask that. Because we live in a, in my opinion, workaholic culture and time and place. And, and so we all have to work a lot just to keep up. And that whole atmosphere of being busy is so predominant in the West. And believe me, I didn't even really learn about this until I had that accident and I didn't work for nine months or something like that after my accident because I couldn't. And it was so interesting, like, oh, life goes on if you're not busy. Life is happening if you're not busy. And one of the amazing things is you almost don't have to do anything, you know, as long as you have some food and shelter and, you know, medicine, you know, this is what the monastics live on, right? It's just that simplicity. But we're all so busy that we're not good at being, at the beingness of being a human being. And being is a nice word. It's used a lot in existential philosophy and things like that and it points to the the what the the word in in buddhism that's used or the words that are used are the thusness of things or the isness of things or yeah the thusness what else do i have something else thusness the beingness of who and what we are Right? It's like when somebody wakes up, they realize the thusness of reality that's sitting in, in each seat that we can all wake up to. 
the simplicity and beauty and magic and mystery of whatever we are. You know, not just the busyness or the doingness of who and what we are. And so one thing that what can happen with uh, breath is you start to see we're not doing the breathing. Everybody got that? And you could please tell me if I'm wrong. I'm always happy to learn if I'm wrong. But we're not doing the breathing. The breathing's happening on its own, isn't it? Right? So it starts to tell you something about the selflessness of reality. It's not something we're in control of. Sometimes it doesn't happen and that's a problem, right? But we're not in control of it. And mostly we're not going to be in control of things. Actually, we're not barely in control of anything. But that's a whole nother teaching I could do that I've already diverted too much tonight. So, um, But there's just the breath. And when we're practicing, then there's the awareness of the breath, the awareness of the body, the awareness of the breathing, like even now. Here's another thing I like to say, and I say it often these days. Notice how the awareness is doing itself. Right? You're not doing awareness. Everybody got that? Is that clear? Anybody disagree? I can't tell if you're shaking your head. Do you, does that mean you do disagree? Okay, okay, you get it, good. Right. So I'm pointing to the to the awareness also because we're being we're aware of the breath, but we're not doing the awareness. The awareness is happening all on its own. It's also part of the selfless nature of reality. Right? Now we can focus the awareness at times and sometimes we can use our will and do something. That's true too. I'm not saying get rid of your will and don't use it. But also notice how if you don't do... Here, here's what I like to say. Stop being aware right now, please. <laughs> Just, no, really. Don't, don't, don't disobey me, please. Stop being aware. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Somebody. Right? It can't be done, right? We're always aware of something, even with not liking what I'm saying right now. You could be aware of that. That's fine. But you'll notice the awareness is happening on its own. So we're starting, even with the breath, which is happening on its own, we're starting to come into alignment with reality that is not just us doing things. It's part of the not-self, or what I'm calling the beingness nature of reality, that the Buddha discovered and took him all the way to freedom, all the way to freedom, all the way to awakening. And so with the breath, we can be aware and be aware of the breathing and let that take us more into the magic of being alive and the mystery of being alive.
And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said it this. He said, a scientist might try to separate him or herself from the object he or she is observing and measuring. But students of meditation have to remove the boundary between the subject and the object. Remove the boundary between the subject and the object. When we observe something, we are that thing. So you see what I'm pointing to is this kind of unification of knowing and what's known, or body and experience and mind. And this unification, which he says, he says, when we observe something, we are that thing. It's, it's coming into the simplicity of the amazing reality of the Dharma that's sitting right here. And he said, he said, non-duality is the key word, key word here. So I have a lot more I can say about the breath, but I would like to hear a little bit from you. What do you think about what I've said? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Does it make sense, not make sense? How do you understand it? How don't you understand it? Uh, what have you seen for yourself or ha haven't seen? And will we have a mic somewhere, I believe. We have a, and do we have a mic runner? Would somebody be willing? George, thank you. Yeah. And this is, and I, we do this at SFI every week now because we're all learning about the Dharma and this is a really helpful part. So please feel free to agree, disagree, like, not like, have question, comment, who, and raise your hand. Oh, great. Hi. And please say your name. My name is Dale, and Dale. I have been meditating for a while. I started meditating more uh, during chemotherapy, and uh -huh. I continued once I was well. Uh -huh. That was 16 years ago. Uh -huh. But I've noticed that my dreams have changed what's coming to my dreams. Uh -huh. So um, I'm receiving a lot of more information in my dream time. That's great. So receiving a lot of information a in A lot of dream. information. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't want too much information. So uh -huh. I... Don't dream too much. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I don't know whether no. to stop meditating so much. So, but why, whoa, 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 keep the mic a second. <laughs> So why don't you want too much information? Because I dreamed some things that happened in my family. Yeah. And they came true. Right. And I, you know, I'm not sure I want to dream and know everything about what's going to happen in my right. family. Okay, and I, I totally respect that. <gasps> and that may, be, that may be something you'll learn a little more about how to navigate boundaries with that kind of information. Or you also may l learn a little more about what's limiting your knowing that because it's true. You may end up knowing more than you want to know. It's a lot of responsibility. Well, well that, but that may be part of your investigation. Investigation being the second factor of awakening with mindfulness and to see what's the responsibility. Because the Buddha, it said, had a lot of capacity to read minds and know what was going to happen. And sometimes he would do stuff, and sometimes he wouldn't do anything. 
And there's a very famous stories you can read in the text where um, he's sitting by, by the road and there's some of the, some army is starting to walk past and he talks to the general and they're going to war and he knows it's not a good thing and he has talked with the general and he convinces the general not to go to war. And he's really happy they don't go to war. And then it, this whole, same scene happens again later in the text, and only a different different group of warriors going by and going to war. And the Buddha sees, oh, it's not going to be good, and he tries to talk to them. They don't listen to him, and he lets them go. Okay. 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 Right. And thank we'll see what you discover. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Because you're also, you're pointing at something that happens with consciousness at a certain point. It can, who knows what's possible to know, really. And we, we live in a conventional, conventionally limited idea of what we can know. And then sometimes things open up in ways that we would never expect and we can know things past, present, and future. Who knows how that happens? But it's, then, then the question is, how do we practice with it? Yeah, great. Okay, please. Yeah, hi, Eugene, uh, I'm Marvin. Hi. And, and at one point, do one thing. Point the mic at your mouth. Point it at your mouth. Oh, yes, like, like that. that. Is that better? Great, yeah, yes. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to uh, sort of elaborate on the uh, idea that, and I liked very much what you said about uh, the subject-object relationship we have with the world. Uh -huh. uh, just a, a simple example of it. I, I go out to Stinson Beach a lot, and there's always people wooing and eyeing over the sunset. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it majestic? As, you know, and this is, the, I think, what you're talking about. When we begin to critique the world, because we become very sophisticated at this, okay? The point is, is the sunset is not beautiful. What is beautiful is your experience of it. That is a certain autonomy that you cannot let go. That is you. Uh -huh. That is the inviolable experience, the event of your being. Uh -huh. Now, that is what you own. And not only are you being, you are always being here. Uh -huh. You are in the world. You are never anywhere else but it. You started here, end here. I missed the last line or two. Being, uh, as I said, you, 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 the event of your being always is here in the world, uh -huh. in this very world. Uh -huh. uh, it's, not, it's not like I'm in this room, I'm here. Uh -huh. Now, it might be this room, it might not be this room. Uh -huh. That's for all of us to own. And one other thing I would add, I would add to your list of words that end in I-R-E, uh -huh. is... Autonomy, which is our life, the life we've been given, uh -huh. is autonomous. It's uh -huh. not auto uh, uh, autocracy, it's autonomous. <laughs> okay. It's itself, it owns itself, and it loves itself. 
And the word comes to mind is, every one of us is here today, I think, because we aspire. We aspire, we reach for something higher. I, that's, that's my elaboration. Thanks for letting me talk. Sure, thank you. Yeah, you're I'm welcome. appreciating, uh, yeah. you said some interesting things, good things. And I love that you use the word aspire because we began with inspire and expire. And now we also have aspire because I think it's very syntonic with the uh, inspiration that is in the that we find in the Dharma itself. That the Dharma is inspiring, and so we aspire to realize what we know is possible. And even we end up aspiring to know what, what is beyond what we know is possible. And so I appreciate that very much. You, you know, you've got to hold the mic if you're going to say one more thing. Wait, wait, the mic's coming back to you. Well, you've got to talk into the mic. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that uh, all there's this a, leads to... a lot to, of people here. <laughs> all this leads to... Uh, what I call a hallelujah moment. There is a hallelujah moment. And it grows out of the experience of aspiration. Uh -huh. And it will bring you to your knees. Okay, well that's, you know. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's just the final thing. I want. Okay, well, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. What else? Right behind you. Great. Hi. Uh, my name is Lakita, and uh -huh. I just want to appreciate for you for your talk about the breath. Because, you know, not only did I get cancer recently, uh -huh. but then two weeks ago, the tragic thing happened in Fairfax, and that was yeah. my husband. Yeah, I'm sorry and about that. And basically, the thing that keeps me alive right now is the breath to breath. Yes. To breath. Not yes. even moment by moment or day by day. It's really down just to the breath yeah. every single moment. Yeah. So thank you for your talk and for being here today because I feel really good here and peaceful just being with the breath and the collective breath here. Great. So thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for being here and for speaking because you're saying something I wouldn't have even said, but you're saying it because you know it. And that is the Dharma. Appreciation. So, and really, I think that's a really good place to stop. So I'm, I'm going to stop. Let's sit for just a moment. We'll do a little sharing of merit. taking a moment to appreciate our life here together, the liveness of us being here together this evening, at this time, at this moment, with this breath, which will never, ever happen again like this. Never. This group of people with our lives, the reality, and the mystery of what's here as we breathe.
May the goodness and blessings of our time here tonight be for the benefit of ourselves, of each other. May it be for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from confusion, free from misunderstanding. May we all wake up. May we all awaken. May we discover our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you all. Good to be here with you. Please remember that if you want to go east, you have to go west when you leave Spirit Rock. Meaning you can't turn left when you leave. You have to turn right and then circle through Woodacre. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, please, unless you want to, you know, meditate with the police people, you know. But. And uh, yeah, thank you. Please be well. Come join us at uh, San Francisco Insight every Sunday night at the Unitarian Church in San Francisco.